to the Urban Robot Cat Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Likens. I'm Chris RWK. And I'm Corey from Strange Cat Toys. And we're here for episode 33. First, though, we have to say thank you to our sponsors. First up, we have Stickerfied. Stickerfied.com, where you can pick up a wonderful sticker for you, just like they made for us. You can head over to Stickerfied.com and check out all the products they have to offer. Also, we have No Love City, NoLoveCity.com, where you can get the full color Urban Robot Cat t-shirt. If you use the code UrbanRobotCat at checkout, you'll receive 10% off your order. Also, we have SD Prints, SDScreenPrinting.net, where you can get some wonderful screen printed product for yourself to sell in your store. You know, your eBay listing, I don't know where you want to sell it, but you can sell it anywhere you want. That is SDScreenPrinting.net. Also, we have TYO Toys, tyotoys.com, where you can pick up some wonderful DIY platforms that you can put your own original spin on. If you want to head over to tyotoys.com, you can pick those up and check out all it is they have to offer. So, Chris, episode 32, it's been another week of quarantine. What are you up to? Nope, episode 33. You're right, episode 33. I got it wrong from the start. No, no, you you actually said it right. And then you just said it wrong. And then I backtracked? Okay. Yeah, somehow you went back in time. <laughs> We're a professional organization over here. 100%. So what have you been up to, though? Episode 33. I got I to gotta say, episode 33, that's pretty cool. That's impressive. It's about 30 more than I thought we were going to make. We should have had underwater pirates on this episode. Yeah, well, you know, I am part of the 33 crew also. So I have been up to painting. Painting new work, designing some new collaborations with some past guests of the show. Last week, I got to do that mural with uh, Zero Productivity. Nice. Just been staying busy. What are you, Corey? What have you been up to? Packing up Dokubi toys. Sold out of the first colorway, and hopefully by the time this airs, the next colorway from Tenacious Toys will be all sold out. But other than that, not much else. What about you, Travis? Kind of like a busy week on the personal front, so I've been kind of like distracted a little bit. Did get notification that we're going to be getting some shipments in. Uh, hopefully in the early August timeframe coming from China. So most of our product will be here, um, hopefully for the fall uh, timeframe. We're only a few months behind where we originally planned to be, so it should be back to normal as far as product flow here pretty soon from UVD Toys. But uh, on the personal front, we've got some uh, construction underway at the house to you know make room for the, the new addition of the, the baby here. So it's been kind of chaotic at home. Are you putting that baby in the attic? Yeah, we're putting it in the attic. <laughs> no, uh, actually, the attic, we're kind of like finishing out a little bit. Uh, we have a Victorian-style house, so our attic is very large. Can't really put like a human up there. I may move up move up there at some point to do podcasting because it's kind of private, you know, kind of thing. But mainly, it'll be used for storage. So um, we're going to put up some, put some flooring in, put some walls up, you know, kind of thing. But uh, nothing, uh, you know, too crazy. The real goal in the attic is actually just to insulate and get some you know lighting and some plugs and stuff up there so if we did want to work up there for some reason we could the attic's kind of creepy looking right now but uh there's a lot of space and potential up there i gotta say it's funny that you can't put a human up there and then you went on to say that you're going to record up there no i would i would not put a small a small child that that has not experienced uh you know heat up there but myself i could probably put up there but eventually we do plan to put some sort of air conditioning into that area probably not connected to the main system in the house but like some sort of like you know, window unit or mini split, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, go mini split. Those things are the best. But we've got some contractors up in here, so it's been kind of kind of busy and <laughs> kind of crazy. But we are not here just to talk about the oddities that we find in the attic. So we do have a wonderful guest here, and this week we have the one and only Kirby from Rotofugi. Kirby, 
Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Kirby, for folks that may not know who you are, would you mind telling everybody a little bit about what it is that you do in the world of art? Sure. So, I am the owner, gallery director, and toy wrangler for a store in Chicago called Rotofuji. And we're also online at rotofuji.com. And we've been doing that since July of 2004. So, we've been around. Just a couple years, huh? A few. A few. Coming up on the coming up on the anniversary real soon. That's, that's crazy to think that you're coming up on nearly 20 years. Yeah, yeah, we'll be so we'll be at uh, 16 this year. 20 will be a nice nice one to make it to. Let's all keep our fingers crossed. You know, like from a time frame of 2004. So what what is it that got you kind of focused on you know kind of like designer toys and like the lowbrow art scene at that point in time? Because essentially it would be like a new and exciting thing at that point. Very new. Very new. So I was living in Little Rock, Arkansas with my wife, Whitney, and art directing a magazine. And I saw an article in Wired Magazine that was about designer toys. And at the time, I'm trying to recall what was in the article exactly, but I think it was mostly, it was a little bit about Michael Lau, a little bit about Kid Robot. And uh, one of the things they showed was some, uh, some keys from Toy 2R. Very, you know, it was really before, you know, Kid Robot was up and running, but they were practically the only people doing anything in the U.S. at the time. I was getting ready to say, it's got to be, I mean, Kid Robot from a 2004 perspective, it's got to be like like Cheech Wizard. Yeah, exactly. I think the article was even before Dunny Series 1 came out. As a matter of fact, I'm certain it was. And at the time, we, I ordered a few things from Kid Robot just because I thought it was really cool. I've, you know, I was, I've been a graphic designer and, and worked in an art field my entire life and just thought it was really interesting. And so we, we ordered a couple toys and thought it was really cool. And then we moved back to Chicago in early 2004. And I started looking for, for places that sold these things in, in person. I've always been a big proponent of, of, or a fan of going into a store and seeing something, especially when it comes to art. You know, I, I think there's a dynamic that you don't get looking at a photo. And sometimes that's okay, and sometimes it's not. So in this case, we started looking for a place that was selling designer toys and really didn't find anything because it was, <laughs> it was still not really a thing in the U.S. And out of, I don't know, stupidity or sheer enthusiasm, a little bit of both, we decided we'd open a store. And that was 16 years ago. I'd like to say that that narrative has changed, but I feel like everybody who gets into toys, that's the same thing that's still going on nearly 16 years later. Oh, for sure. For sure. It's one of those things that, you know, if you don't know it exists and then you, you come across it and you, you come into this whole subculture, you know, especially if you're inclined to design and art, it's, it's intoxicating because it's huge. And it's really, you know, it's like a community, right? Like, I feel like from, you know, 10 years in designer toys, like I've like probably 80% of the people I talk to on a regular basis are people that are spread across the country or world that are people I've met through this, you know, community. It's not where I expected to be in life, but it's where I am. And it's amazing. Yeah, for sure. This was not in the grand plan. Not, not that I had a grand plan, but yeah, like you're saying, you know, I've done this now long enough and I literally know people all over the world. You know, I could go to almost any country in the world and, and couch surf if I wanted to. And that's, that's amazing. I haven't done it, 
but it's it's a, it's nice to know it's possible. When I went to Tokyo, left from Decon and went straight to Japan when we went. And uh, well, before we left, we were like, "Hey, Jeremiah Kettner, we're going. You know, we're coming to Tokyo." He's like, "Well, you know, I get back on Tuesday. If you want me to show you around on Wednesday, let me know." And he gave us like a little tour of Tokyo. You yeah, know? and it's awesome. kind of like it's just crazy that uh, you know you, you meet people. You know, I met Jeremiah at a show at Rotofugi, and you know from there we've just kind of like communicated back and forth a bunch, and you know, super friendly, super nice, and we've worked together on a couple of projects and different things. And then, boom, I've got a tour guide of Tokyo. You know, it's just crazy how, like, that all kind of happens and works. You know? Yeah, amazing. You know, as far as the gallery and the and the store, wh- at first you opened, you were in a different location than where you're at now. What was it like opening that first small smaller location? Um, what was it like, kind of like, was it daunting? Or was it like, boom, we're going to fill this full of, you know, stuff and people are just going to come out of the woodwork and it's going to be amazing your first week, you know, kind of thing? Or was it not what you expected right out the gate? I, I will say... I tried to go into it with, with very little expectation. And like I hinted at earlier, I think we just, we did it because we didn't, we didn't know what else to do. It, it just seemed like a fun thing to do. Whitney, I, I had a job. Whitney was looking for a job and we had just sold the house that we bought in Little Rock and moved back to Chicago. And we had some money from that. So instead of buying a place to live, we decided to open a business because, you know, that's the type of crazy I am. But the first year was was weird, to be honest. The timing was good, and it just kind of took off. And so we were operating out of a little, about 800-square-foot space when we started. And I originally, you know, when we promoted the store, we called it a designer toy store and gallery. And that's stuck with us the entire time. But when I said gallery, I, I never really intended to open an art gallery. It was really meant to be a toy gallery. And, and the idea was, was to try to get across this idea that toys can be art. And, you know, now that's, that's still a, a hard idea to sell to the general public today, even 16 years later. But at the time, people really didn't understand that we were selling toys that were also art. And that was, you know, education was a big part of our mission for the first few years. But it just kind of took off. We threw up a website and threw open the doors. And really within the first year, we were, we were busy enough that we either had to start hiring people because I was working, you know, Whitney was running the store full time while I worked full time at a, a print production house in Chicago doing uh, photo retouching. And then working at nights and weekends and, and you know, just around the clock and, and the business took off so fast, we eventually, we hit the point where it's like, okay, do we hire people or do you quit your job? And I just was ready. Jumped in feet first, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was really, it was an amazing time. The first, really the first uh, four years were, were like a, a whirlwind. You know, we, we just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And it was like, you know, it was Kid Robot was really blowing up those first few years. You know, they went from nobody knew who they were to they were suddenly this kind of fashion brand. You know, if, if you remember, like, when the hoodies were a big deal and, like, Kid Robot just really went, really went big for a couple of years. They had the streetwear line and they had the toys and they had, you know, like, their you know, the crazy bags and all the stores were popping up. You know, it was just kind of a thing. And and we just happened to be in the right place at the right time, you know. And so we had us and My Plastic Heart and, oh, and Nin Yushi was a thing. Uh, I miss those guys. 
I was trying to think, like I was trying to think back to the stores that have been around that long. It really was you, my plastic heart. I'm trying to think of when Dragon Tomy opened. That's what I was about to say. I want to say Toy they Art were Gallery. maybe two years later, yeah. and then Gino Toy Art Gallery yeah. would have been closer to like 2008 or nine. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, something like that. And then you know, like places like Monkey King would have been back then as well. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, and we could reminisce about names all day long robot love in minneapolis was awesome there's been a lot of great stores some that are still around and some that aren't unfortunately it's a tough game i mean you kind of are like a mainstay holding on you and my plastic cart to be honest i think vin must be a much better business person than me because he's he's still making it work out of that out of his original space and i'm i'm amazed i those guys are awesome. Ben's just a great guy, you know. For sure. You know, I was really worried during, you know, COVID and everything, what was going to happen with places that, you know, have been making toys and, you know, selling toys for a long period of time. Luckily, most of the places have still like a strong online presence. But, uh, you know, I was really worried about the outcome of COVID and the riots and, you know, all this stuff, whether or not it was going to affect the stores that we've grown to know and love and support. Yeah, it's been, uh, to be honest, a very anxiety-filled couple months. Definitely. And I think I've been pretty pretty open about this publicly. Like, Rotofuji's the business is kind of struggling, and it, and it has for years. You know, we're trying to make a go in a very kind of specialized niche. And even in a major metro area, it's hard to generate the type of traffic and sales that we need to keep a, a store the size of ours going, uh, that size of a retail footprint. And then we went from that to, okay, here's a global pandemic. Okay, now here's looting and rioting right down our street. We did, we luckily were unaffected, but you know, there were big parts of Chicago that were definitely affected. Yeah, definitely. The first time I ever went to, to Rotofugi, this was probably 2010, maybe 11, somewhere in that. So after we moved. Yeah, after you moved. The first time I ever went, you were in the location you're at now. I remember you had the, the four-foot cause in the window. Yep. If that was still there, I think your outcome might have been different. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. It would have been. Yep. It would have been. That, that four-foot cause is a pretty good example of how bad of a business person I actually am. Because if I told you how much I sold that for... Uh, you know, you sold it before it went crazy, though. Oh, yeah. It was still like, I mean, it was still probably a profit, but nowhere near what it would pull today. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I made three or four times what I originally paid for it, but they're now selling for 30 to 40 times that price. <laughs> <laughs> so, oops. I, don't, I actually don't feel bad about it. I, I, I know where it is, and I'm, I'm really, I really like the person that has it, so I'm glad, I'm glad they're enjoying it. Well, in predicting that, I mean, I don't think any of us, we all knew that cause was going to get popular and big, but you know, like to, to where it is now, like it's insane. Like, yeah, for sure. Who would ever thought he would be on an Apple billboard? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, he, he's a pretty good example of someone that kind of worked in this lowbrow art market and then made the jump to the, the full on kind of contemporary and museum scene and just not very many artists can do that and also be commercial at the same time and it's been impressive to watch what he's done even if i don't really care much for it <laughs> <laughs> and i mean like that's that's the thing though like you don't necessarily have to respect the art but i respect the hustle i guess you would say i mean i i, I like his art i just i the hype for it is so overblown that that it's hard to enjoy it so kirby when you when you opened your store in Chicago, did you pick that city specifically for the store, or you were just like, we live here, this is we, a good spot? 
So I moved to Chicago originally in 98, mainly because I had visited Chicago as a high school student and fell in love with the city. And uh, I'm Midwestern. I was uh, born and raised in Missouri. And Chicago, I think, is just the, well, it's the closest big city, but, but I fell in love with Chicago when I was like 18 years old, and, and it took me a, about 10 years to get there. And once I was there, met my wife, got married, moved to Arkansas, and, and two years in Arkansas was enough to say, all right, well, let's go back to Chicago because we like it there better. So Chicago is home to me, and it always will be. So to answer the question, uh, no, we were, we were in Chicago, and, and it seemed like a great place to open a little store. Okay. I know you guys came out early there. Like, there really hasn't been any other stores get in that area. I think the closest is probably Detroit, right? Yes, uh, except for Kid Robot opened a pop-up store for about six months once. Let's see. There's been, oh, uh, Kansas City had a store for a while. St. Louis, I think, had somebody doing some vinyl for a while. But, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like I was saying earlier, you know, you need a major metro market to make it work if you want to have a retail storefront. Right, because it's it's just too much of a niche to expect a small market to carry a retail store. That's that's kind of what I keep telling people when they ask if I'm ever going to open up a shop. I'm like, look, I, I'm in the middle of Florida. Like, I'd have to go to Miami, maybe. But yeah. other than that, there's nothing here for that. Someone tried in Orlando for a while. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, Uberbot. Uberbot. Yep, that's the one. Yep. Um, but yeah, I can't, I mean, just to be frank, you know, even Chicago, the retail storefront by itself doesn't work. Like if I didn't ha- also have an online business, it wouldn't make any sense. It's just, it's, that's the way this, this niche works. I mean, that's why, that's how every kind of hobbyist collectible niche works. That's why there aren't stores dedicated to selling sideshow toys. Right. You know, even though that's a, a very profitable, very thriving collector market, it's not the type of thing that people walk into stores and buy, especially yeah, in smaller markets. Yeah, I mean, I see that with like comic shops too. Like, they don't. You, I don't think you'll ever find a comic shop that just sells comics. Like, not know, anymore, they're going to have apparel yeah. and toys and signings and art shows yeah. and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the first designer toys I bought were at Chicago Comics. Remember buying Sony blind boxes from them, Dalek toys. Wow, that was that would have been early 2004, probably or late 2000. No, early 2004, before we opened the store. And I mean, really, like like you were saying, I feel like most markets or most you know kind of hobbies or niche markets or anything like that, there if there are storefronts, they're probably going to have a heavy online business as well because even those comic book shops that are local a lot of them are selling like high-end collectible comics either via ebay or some sort of online platform yeah well there's there's just no excuse to limit yourself to to just retail right now even though i'm i'm the biggest proponent of you know the the good that having a physical presence can do for you and even even Corey, you know like with your with your uh bus you know like that gives you so much reach that you wouldn't have otherwise yeah but it's not enough to to just do that and it probably won't ever be not not right. for what we do yeah and even you know even setting up at conventions and shows i mean historically you know you've set up at different shows either c2e2 or decon or you know anywhere else that you've set up um, even getting out in different markets or different areas there it just meeting with people that collect the things that you sell or you make is uh you know it's just 
hugely beneficial to, am I doing things the way that I should be? Or do I need to collect this or bring this in or try to change and pivot and do this? You can get all that feedback in person that you can't get online. You know, and like having a store, you daily can get that versus Corey and I maybe once a month or once every, you know, once a quarter or once every six months, you know, kind of thing. Um, I, I feel like that's beneficial having that location, Yeah. but it's also, you know, costly and creates a lot of overhead that you then have to sell a lot of product daily. Yeah. Tell me about it. To then, you know, make up that overhead. That is so, so true. <laughs> Cause like, I feel like we get that question a lot. It's like, Oh, why don't you don't have a store in Dayton? It's like, no, they're like not no. enough people like per day are going <laughs> to walk way. into that store. I would have to a own the building and B be running my business out of that building and just have a small storefront that somebody occasionally, if the bell rings, walks up there yeah. and, uh, you know, like checks it out to see it's like another duty is assigned. It would not be the main purpose of for the sure. So from a standpoint of once you move to that bigger space, you do get that gallery space. And over the years, you've had a lot of, you know, awesome gallery openings, gallery shows that you've you've put on there. You've worked with artists like Lu Chu, Frank Kozik, Jay Ru, uh, Andrew Bell, the list goes on and on. But uh, what kind of element did adding that actual gallery space that you originally said, you know, I'd never really intended to have an art gallery. What did that do to help, you know, expand what the store was doing? Well, you know, so... We started out, uh, I'll finish that story and, and answer your question at the same time. So we put gallery in the name and immediately someone contacted us and wanted to know, like, how do I show it your gallery? And in this case, it was actually a toy company. It was um, Ad Funcher, it was Eddie Yip, and we did, we did the Fling the Monkey show. So we started planning an exhibit before we even opened the store, wow. um, <laughs> e- even though that was not my plan. So even though... You know, the, the original concept was, was never to have a gallery. We've always had a gallery. It gave us a lot of things. Early on, it gave us an inroads and a way to tie to the Chicago community and the Chicago art community in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. So I got to, to know uh, this community of artists in Chicago, people like, you know, like PB and Revised CMW and, and a lot of the, the early shows were, were, a lot of them were Chicago-based artists. And over the years, as that, portion of our business grew, it, it gave us a platform to connect artists that maybe weren't involved with toys, or maybe they were, but to make the connection between art and toys and make it stronger and show people like whether you're collecting a toy or buying a print or a canvas or whatever, you're buying an artist's creativity, their output, their voice, their mission. And having the the gallery really just reinforced that for the toy side of the business and I think made us stronger overall. And I think that's still true today. You know, once you kind of started the art shows and the store, you eventually start working with Squiggles Inc. to produce toys. Yeah. And I think that that element of your, you know, kind of your your motto or your creed to work with artists from Chicago or the Midwest kind of spills over into the toys that you ended up producing. It certainly did. And that keeping that pulse on, you know, Chicago or Midwest-based artists and what they were doing was probably key in that process as well. For sure. You know, when we started with Joe, uh, you know, Joe just kind of walked in off the street one day and said, hey, I I make toys. (laughs) You're like, what? Huh? No, we started talking about, you guys probably know about this from, at least from our project, if not from somewhere else, but 
we started talking about moldoramas and how much we both love them so much. And that mm-hmm. discussion led to what is now a almost 15-year friendship and most of that as partners in producing toys as well. And I couldn't be happier, you know, and, and you're right. We decided pretty early on that we wanted to give a platform to some of the artists that were from Chicago and from around the Midwest that maybe weren't being seen yet. Because even, you know, in 2007, 2008, the scene was still very East Coast, West Coast centric. That's kind of how culture drifts in the U.S. You know, it starts on one of the coasts and works its way towards the middle. And we were trying to raise the middle up a little bit. And I definitely think you became kind of that that beacon for the for the Midwest as far as designer toys and art scene was concerned, because it you really were the only place that was championing and having that, even bringing people that were from the East or West Coast to have at your gallery shows, you were making a place where people that were in the Midwest could go and experience that. I mean, I was driving like five hours from Ohio on a Friday to go to your art show and just hang out and see, and the artists are going to be there. We're going to meet with them and, you know, cover it on our website and all this stuff. But we were driving five hours to come hang out at a shop because the only other option was to fly to California or fly to New York or drive to New York. And that probably wasn't going to happen. So like, I mean, somebody from the Midwest is getting in a car and packing up and taking a day off work to go do that. That's, that's pretty, that speaks volumes to what it is that you were doing at, you know, at the time you were doing it. So. Well, thanks man. As far as the gallery was concerned, we always just, I always approached it as I like to show art that I like. And so largely what you saw was, was my taste in artwork. People like Kozik. We did a couple shows with Frank. And I think Frank's been an underestimated painter for his entire career. But, you know, he was an, he was an easy choice for us because he was also making waves in the toy scene. But that kind of goes back to we always kind of tried to weave together this schedule that was a combination of people that were both known to toy fans and not known and, and things that kind of just worked in different directions. And if you look at what we've done through the history of the gallery, it's a pretty interesting array of stuff. It's, you know, it's, we're not super focused, but there's definitely a focus. What I definitely think too, is that, uh, you know, kind of in the recent years in Chicago, there's been like an explosion of, you know, attention or, you know, just artists that are kind of gaining national or even big local attention. And the scene has kind of changed for Chicago as well. And I think you guys were majorly a part of the focus or change and excitement around art. I think you guys were people that were bringing in stuff that people didn't see otherwise. And I think that's an important part of that story as well. Uh, I mean, I hope that's the case. I'm probably too close to it to see it. But yeah, I hope we I hope we had a positive influence. Well, I mean, it's just, you know, Chicago, you know, we've kind of had this discussion in a, you know, in prior podcasts, but I feel like Chicago is, you know, because it is like, you know, like you were saying earlier, where culture kind of starts on the East and West and kind of works its way in. Chicago has like a little bit of a chip on its shoulder. Sure. And for years it was kind of like, look at us, look at us, we're doing cool stuff and people were kind of ignoring it. And now I feel like it's to the point where you can't ignore us anymore. We've got all these people that are doing awesome stuff and it's kind of like spreading across the nation and people are finally getting kind of more shine. I mean, Hebrew Brantley is obviously one of the you know examples, but you know, there's obviously more examples than that, but that's the only one I'm going to toss out. It's just, the culture has changed and you guys were a part of that change. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'll take it. Yeah, take it where you can get it, right? Exactly, exactly. So from a standpoint of where the gallery is now, or is there somewhere that you're trying to take it in the future? Or you know, with the change in how you can have gallery shows and all that kind of stuff, where, where do you see it going from here? To be entirely frank, it is in limbo right now. I normally book my exhibits 12 to 18 months in advance, and I was already a little behind schedule. And so I've not booked a single show for next year, and I don't know if I will, because I can't encourage people to congregate as long as there's a global pandemic. You know, we're, we're going to run through this year's schedule, and I'm going to see how the next few months go, and then I'll decide if, I'm, if we're still going to be a gallery next year or not, because I honestly don't know. And from a standpoint of, I know you have limited hours as far as a retail establishment is concerned. I'm assuming that you're kind of like living off the online sales and those kind of things at this point. Yeah, I'm sure the gallery portion of your your store is a major part of your model. And taking that away is probably you know detrimental to the to the business. It is and it isn't. For the overall health of the business, the gallery is still a, a major component. Month to month, no, I'm I'm not booking shows because. If you look at the way we've booked the last few years, especially, I'm not booking shows because I think I'm going to make a ton of money off of them. I'm booking them because I think they're interesting. I think they work well with our vision, if you will, with our style, and they make Roto Fuji a better place. It's not strictly a monetary decision at this point. At this point, I have to decide if less people are going to see the art in person, why are we still doing this, basically? Yeah, and I think that's a question that anybody that's putting on events at this point is kind of thinking. Exactly. If I have to limit people walking in or if I have to change the layout in order to make it work, is it, you know, and all the work that goes into just gathering the artists, getting artists to turn in all their stuff, all the shipping, all the, you know, everything that's involved in setting up the show, is it really worth doing all of that in order for 16 people to see it or, you know, whatever, you know, people that want to come out and see the show, is it worth that? But with, with the whole virtual gallery online thing, I mean, it's kind of, I think that's a good option too now. Absolutely. I mean, we've always been both an online gallery and a physical gallery. Right. But I mean, like doing like the virtual openings that like some galleries have been doing where they actually have the setup like a virtual show, you know, like opening right. night. We of, have you know, not done that. <laughs> right. But it may indeed be the future. And I think we, we kind of talked about this on an episode a couple back. It's I think eventually it, it's almost going to become, all of us would rather go look at the art in person, but I think it's going to become part of the norm because some galleries were already doing it. They just didn't realize that they were doing like Instagram Live or Facebook Live and they were kind of showing their events off and kind of showing pieces and different things. But they, they didn't realize they were already kind of doing that virtual element, but now it's become like a marketable thing. So there's going to be some company that comes in and creates an app that makes it easy for galleries to be able to do this stuff or events or stores yeah. or whatever. Well, right. and next thing you know, and suddenly it's like, well, if you don't have a virtual aspect, then what, how are you even a gallery? You know, like eventually that's what's going to kind of transpire, I feel like, because I would rather drive to Rotofugi, but I can't always be there, you know, kind of thing. Yep. Right. For sure. but, it's, but it's the same kind of idea as like sending out like a, um, like the preview, and like you know, anybody who sends up for a preview, you know they they're getting a jump on it. I mean, when it comes down to it, the, the virtual openings I think opens it up opens up the market to a, a definitely a broader audience. I any of the virtual openings I've seen so far, there's there's obviously time delays and hiccups in them. Yeah. I think I think um, 
you know, there's a few, you know, apps and programs out there. I just think that they need a better commerce aspect of it. You know, it, it, sure, it's cool to be able to, like, you know, walk into the gallery, you know, via the 360-degree camera, but you still have to email it, the gallery to reach out about the painting. So it, it's not as easy. Well, and I mean, you know, a lot of this is people are reacting. As soon as somebody thinks there's some money to be made, they'll figure out a way to do that. Yeah, get to work. You know how these computer things go. If we didn't have this discussion on the internet, we probably could have came up with this on our own, but now somebody will take it and then they'll make it their own thing. If we said copyright, does that count? Trademark? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't steal my idea, man. <laughs> I, I said it. I said it first on June twenty fourth, two thousand twenty. If we burn this to a CD and then we mail it to ourselves, just don't know where open it. That's it. I feel like that's probably not a thing. <laughs> it's one of those old wise tales, right? If you just mail it to yourself, that, that's a copyright. <laughs> right. Yeah, it all goes into that whole like intellectual property thing too. It's pretty stupid. Did you ever mail the the, the robot blueprints to yourself? Is that is that how you copyright it? You have to realize I started doing that back in the late '90s. So what do you think I did? Plus, I did because I was like, I was a dumb kid. I was like, yeah, it's this worked. It's worked just in case, you know. And now it's sitting in a safety deposit box for 20 years. Love it. So I got to ask, where does the name come from? All right, this is this is an easy. This is like I, a softball question. I appreciate I, but, it. But but it also need you also need to say how it's pronounced because it's always pronounced different ways. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you how I pronounce it, and 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 we'll get to the pronunciation too. Um, so, roto, uh, obviously, roto casting is the influence for the roto part of our name. And so, when we were uh, kind of brainstorming, and we had decided we were going to open this toy store, and it needed a name, I wanted to name it Roto something. Didn't know what, and Whitney was a proponent of naming it after our dog. And uh, Travis, I think you've probably met, you probably got to meet Fuji when he was still with us. I did. Yeah. And so the name of the store is the product of those two things. And having this conversation about what to name it with a friend and over drinks one night and him just saying, damn it, just name it Roto Fuji. And, and that's what happened. Also, the domain was available. So that made it pretty uh, an easy decision. You know, it's, it's a unique enough sounding name. And so to get to the pronunciation... We've always pronounced it Roto Fuji because it's named after uh, Fuji, the dog, whose name is spelled with a G because our veterinarian uh, is apparently horrible at spelling. <laughs> um, but early on, a lot of people uh, kind of assumed because of the, the, what we were selling that we were a Japanese brand or something. We kind of just leaned into it a little bit. We never claim to be a Japanese brand, but because we are selling a lot of products either from Japanese artists or definitely with a Japanese inspiration, we just kind of leaned into it. And so if somebody comes in and, you know, calls us Rotofugi, like we're, you know, some, some brand, we're not going to correct them. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> right. it just is what it is. Um, as long as you're coming through the door and you're having fun and you think what we have is cool and interesting, I really don't care what you call it. It is what it is, right? And is there still a uh, Moldorama museum so, in Chicago? Uh, well, the Moldoramas in Chicago are all in kind of you know big public attraction spaces, mm -hmm. so zoos, museums, that sort of thing. The one we uh, ended up with, I bought from. It came out of a dude's barn in somewhere in Michigan, 
And he had got it from the Los Angeles Zoo when they retired their machines in the late 90s. So I bought this beat-up Moldorama and spent uh, two years and way too much money trying to get it to work. And then finally got it to work, and we ran it reasonably hard for about, uh, I think, two years, two or three years. And it basically started to fall apart again. So it's currently in storage. Uh, waiting for me to be fully, uh, foolhardy enough to try to repair it again. Because isn't the the main offices are in Chicago? So they are. The they are. So yeah. yeah. So we we actually kind of became friends with the the owners of the current Moldorama, uh, at least the the Midwest Moldorama. Moldorama, like if if you get into you know if you're into like histories of collections and collecting things, Moldorama is an interesting story because you know there's like disputes over who owns the trademark name Moldorama and it originally was one one company that then split up into three different companies and there it's a it's an interesting story if you get into yeah. that kind of crap it's it's definitely one of the coolest things i mean i hadn't seen one in years i mean i had ones from when i was a kid at like gatorland down in florida and stuff like that yep. and then and then a couple of years ago we had gone to uh down in florida where they have the mermaids they actually had two machines there and like yep. it like just fully got us back into like the whole collecting and looking to them and it was it's such a it's an incredible machine when it comes down to it. It it's really crazy. is. Uh and and I'm all too familiar with every piece of technology <laughs> inside one of those. And you, you probably can still smell it. Like. Oh geez. It, I actually I actually love the smell, but Whitney always hated it. And, and we, we kind of fought over it. I wouldn't say we fought over it, but when we retired it and put it back in storage, I don't think she was unhappy. So you, uh, you, did, you did one mold, right? So you did the Tim Biscuit mold. Did you have multiple? That is the only mold we ever successfully made. That's not saying we didn't try to make other molds, uh, but, but that's the one that, that we produced and, and actually ran in the machine. You know, you could... There was a period of about two or maybe three years you could walk into Rotofuji and you could purchase a token and drop it in the machine and it would make a, a, a helper dragon. And, and then at the same time, I was staying at the store after hours and running them one after another after another so we okay. could sell them online too. <laughs> nice. I had, I had some pretty pretty fun nights and some pretty frustrating nights uh, running running uh moldorama figures you and then maybe some guy comes and hangs out brings a case of beer you run you push the button but i I don't know some whiskey may have been involved uh at some point (laughs) but yeah i mean that so that that project was was as i mentioned earlier the culmination or the the root of the squibbles inc and rotofuji relationship so yeah joe would come hang out at the store and we'd run run helper dragons sometimes but you know having a moldorama is like having a you know, at, at this point, a 60-year-old car. You know, the, tech, the technology that, that is in that thing is robust, but it's also old and everything, you know, the, it, it breaks. Things break constantly. Well, and it's a super mechanical machine, too. So, like, yeah. think there's lots of areas for it to fail. It is 100% mechanical. So all, all of the control mechanism on a Moldorama are leaf switches. Oh, boy. Uh, and it's all timed with a cam system. And, yeah, that's fun when that gets out of whack you're like but i just want to mold this thing yeah exactly exactly so there you go travis whenever somebody asks you if you can just make one of their figure tell them if they buy a moldorama they can do it yeah if they spend a bunch of money to make the mold they can do it yeah exactly yeah Yeah, we had i'm I'm trying to remember what we paid for we ended up paying to get that 
biscuit mold made. I think it was close to four thousand dollars. Wow! Because it's a water cooled four part mold, and it has to be out of a specific alloy so that it will cool correctly. And we experimented trying to make shorter run molds out of different materials, and just never got it right. And then the machine started falling apart, and we kind of shelved it. We make we're going to come back to that eventually. He's like, I'm I'm thinking about digging it out now. I am not. <laughs> no, you know that was that was that's a passion project. Like we literally never made money selling Moldorama figures. Like we didn't. We I could not make enough of them to justify what I paid for the machine, the amount of time and and money that went into repairing it, and then the cost of the mold. We got a little bit of heat from people in Chicago because they were used to to buying Moldorama figures for a dollar. Like that's, that was just kind of the going rate. And I think maybe by the time we had our machine up and going, the, uh, at least some of the machines in the Chicago area, they were raising them to $2 and we came in at $6 just to try to recoup some of the expense of the project. We'd never sold enough of them to even, even break even, but I don't care. It was fun. Well, that's one of those things you, you do it because you love it. Exactly. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, the store kind of always projected. You, you guys were doing it because you loved doing it and you loved having those things and exposing people in Chicago to those things and around the world, you know, with your online portion of the business. And I think that's something that shined through and the, the Moldorama is just kind of like a perfect example of that. I'm looking at a Tim Biscuit or Biscuit uh, Moldorama figure on eBay for $35. So don't feel bad about $6. Yeah, they've 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 actually held some value, which is interesting to me. I mean, there's probably maybe across various colors, there's maybe two thousand of those figures, give or take, in the world, maybe. But there are some that are editions of like fifty and a hundred, uh, right. just because we mixed up a color in the pot. And the the you know, it's it's a pot of melted wax, basically polyethylene. And, uh, you know, we were just dumping pigment into it and going, oh, that's an interesting color. Okay, now how did we get there? Uh, science. Yeah, exactly. It needs a little more blue. We ran brown for a while because that was just what we ended up with. <laughs> well, that's if you just mix a whole bunch of colors together, right? You get brown. Exactly. Now, you're, uh, you're Abe Lincoln with the eye patch mascot. Has that been around since the start or did that come later on? That's been around since really early. So that the the genesis of that was I mentioned that you know when we first opened we ended up with this show with Adventure with Eddie Yip, and part of that show that was the Fling the Monkey show. Part of that show was we did an exclusive. Our first exclusive toy was a uh, Fling the Monkey, and Fling has this kind of rectangular chest piece, and I was trying to design something that fit on the middle of that monkey's stomach that also kind of said, hey, we're Chicago, we're Midwest, and we're a little rebellious. And to be very honest, uh, so that icon, uh, if you will, or graphic, is based on uh, a photo I found uh, at the Library of Congress and was kind of just playing with it and toying with it and Illustrator and making kind of a stencil outline or a, you know, a high-relief uh, design with it and I couldn't get one of his eyes right like no matter what I did he looked fucking cross-eyed <laughs> um, and and eventually I was like damn it uh, eye patch <laughs> solution 
there you go. And so he has been with us the entire time. And that was really because of, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, and even to this day, Lincoln is a big part of Chicago things. Like there's the Lincoln Restaurant and there's there's Lincoln Square and Lincoln Park and Lincoln everything in Illinois, but, it, but it, it, certainly in Chicago. And so that just kind of was an easy to grab onto symbol that to me said Chicago. And then he became a pirate and took it took on his own life. <laughs> I, I had I had people email me like within the first year we were open and we're using it and be like, Hey, you stole my my pirate Abe Lincoln design. I'm like, Oh god. Oh, yeah. Nope, sorry. Didn't I did not. I mailed it to myself three years ago. I did. I <laughs> mailed it to myself in nineteen eighty eight. So on a outside of the store aspect question of life, I know that you for a long period of time you had a very extensive collection. You talked about having a passion for this project and then opening a store, which I'm sure opened you up to, ooh, I'll take one of these home with me. Yeah. What are some artists that you particularly collected very early on and then some of those figures that have remained around up until now because recently you started posting pieces out of your personal collection and giving us like a little bit of a history on those pieces things were getting a little weird and we needed a way to stay in front of people and i was like well i've got all these toys let's get them out and show them to people but uh what do i collect so what early on we collected anything and everything literally I think that's the life cycle of a collector. Yeah, we, we ran the life cycle of a collector. Ex- exactly. <laughs> I think the first two years we were open, uh, we took home one of everything. The store was my way to collect toys for a long time. What has survived and what I live with on a day-to-day basis is, as you've seen from the Instagram stuff I was doing, it's a lot of 2004, 5, 6, 7 stuff. And, and the stuff that always excited me was artists that then made the jump or offered a toy as an alternative way to collect their artwork. And in this case, that would be Tim Biscop and Gary Baseman primarily. In 2006, 2007, I discovered uh, Safubi or Kaiju and also started collecting a lot of Gargamel. So the, the bulk of the collection that I live with on a day-to-day basis is Tim Biscop, Gary Baseman, and Gargamel. It's not too bad of people to surround yourself with. Yeah, I, I love them. That said, favorite toy is probably none of the above. Um, <laughs> one of the first toys I bought, and, and I did in- feature it on one of the Instagram posts. It's, it's Dorble by Jim Woodring that uh, Strangeco produced. Oh, Strangeco. Yeah. Uh, Strangeco just nailed it. For, for my personal taste and what an art toy can be, Strangeco was nailing it for years. You know, they were, it was a mix of known artists. And giving you an opportunity to, you know, purchase their artwork in a way that you couldn't get it in any other way. You know, you couldn't afford one of their paintings, but you can get one of their toys and upcoming artists. All the way up to the end, because the last toy they make is the Shepherd Fairy Can Man. Exactly. And it's like, that's the last toy? I mean, that's how you go out, right? You go out swinging hard. They were kind of a mainstay of toys, like you were saying, from for a period of time. And it's just, you know, it's kind of crazy that they... It, it really speaks volume to what they made because they're still relevant and you know, you still see people trading or selling the stuff that they made on, you know, toy blogs or toy uh, Facebook groups or, you know, eBay, they're, they're still commanding money for those toys. Well, and, and I'll say too, tying back to another thing we talked about earlier, when we started making toys with Scribbles Inc, 
the strange co model was a lot of what I had in mind. Cause if you go back and look what, at what they were doing is they were shining a light on a lot of San Francisco artists you know, people like Jeremy fish and, and Mars one. And I always thought that that was a, a great thing they were doing is they were producing pieces that, that exposed an artist and brought them to a bigger audience in a bigger world. So they were, they were, they were definitely an inspiration. Do you think there's been anybody to kind of come in and take their place since they left, like on the kind of scale that they were doing? Oh, man. It's hard to say, to be honest. I mean, I'll, I'll flatter Travis a little bit. I, I really like what <laughs> he's doing right now. Oh, wow. No, no, you are. But you're, 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 you're mixing it up and you're, you're doing both, you know, known artists and some that are much less known, bringing them to a new audience as well. But a direct comparison to Strange Co. right now, man, I don't know. It, the, the game is so different now. You know, at one point there were maybe a handful of manufacturers, and now there's literally dozens or we're probably approaching 100 now yep. of, of small manufacturers. The, the, the scene has changed so drastically from being kind of a centralized, or maybe not centralized, but there were certainly a few key players, and that was kind of it, to where now it's just exploded. And especially, you know, if you look at what's going on in Asia and Southeast Asia and Singapore and, and countries like that, it's it's just blown up huge. And I think what I do when I start producing toys is, first off, I make stuff that I like. And then second, you know, I'm like, hey, I feel like I know this person, but maybe not everybody's figured it out yet. I'm going to put this out. And if it works, it works. Like That's kind of what I... Yep kind of start with. I, I'd never want to start from a standpoint of, I have to make money on this to survive. So I try to figure out ways to make it work in which I can just, you know, hopefully break even. And then hopefully if it makes money, then we can make more toys. You know, that's kind of the the mindset I have when I make stuff. Yeah. And if it works, it works. And sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it works great. You know, so it's been kind of a, a roller coaster ride. And I think Strange Co. kind of possibly had a similar mindset because when I look at the stuff they make, it's like you can tell they love the things that they were making. I can tell you unequivocally that Jim and Greg loved the the art they were making. And I think once a brand starts to drift away from that is when it becomes a problem. Yeah. That's where it's like, you know, you start to see the cracks in the brand because they have to start worrying about making that overhead or they, you know, we got to make this thing just to make it. And then suddenly they start losing that integrity within their brand about the things that they're making. And, you know, like, as long as I can keep doing that without giving up my integrity, I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. Good for you, dude. And hopefully, um, you know, it eventually turns into something. If not, I will keep working my day job and keep doing the thing I love on the side. Exactly. Keep, to, uh, keep the day job. No. To, to answer the question that I asked you, um, I would say that Unbox is probably the closest and possibly surpassed Strange Co. at this point. But I don't think anybody else has come close. That's a good answer, dude. They're doing a breadth of work, you know. Yes, I would agree with that because they have everything that's like from the soft final stuff to like more in-depth projects that they do. I mean that yeah. uh, thinking back to early unbox days, that crazy Skinner piece that they made, like with like, where is it's like a skull and it's like a, I don't even know what it's called, but that thing is like a hundred pieces or some shit. <laughs> it's insane. That thing that they made. And you know, from there that kind of set the bar that we're going to make really cool projects and we're going to make things across the board where it's like a creepy monster all the way down to like a cute monster, you know, or cute this or cute that. Yeah. I just, I really wish that they could get some sort of wholesale system set up for us. Cause anytime I want to carry their stuff, I have to like reach out to a store in Hong Kong or Singapore and be like, can I buy some of your unboxed stuff? 
Yeah, I, I gave up on them a while ago. So if anybody from Unbox is listening, you yep. want your stuff in a store in Chicago. There's at least two stores that want you right here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's also interesting to see how much China is now embracing art toys, you know, with companies like Pop Mart and Wetch, however, however we say that. Yeah, I, I always say Motech, but I know that's not it. Yeah, it's M-O-E-T-C-H, Moetch. I don't know. Anyway, but and, and then countless other smaller manufacturers really serving a domestic Chinese market, but starting to spread. Well, and then on top of that, you know, the shows that they're putting on, you know, the yeah. companies like Pop Mart putting out different, you know, the different shows that they put on and stuff. It's just it's, they're creating their own culture that hopefully eventually, you know, kind of spreads around the world because, you know, with China um, being a huge marketplace for young people that are, you know, apparently have money to, to money to spend on, you know, items like toys, it would be nice to kind of figure out ways to attract that market to U.S. products because, um, you know, there, there was that period of time, and as Kirby probably knows, uh, where designer toys kind of took a little bit of a nosedive and, in the U.S. and started to kind of flatten out. And, um, you know, I feel like we're on the uptick and we've been on the uptick for a little while, but, uh, as far as growth is concerned, it, it is, it is a game of catching that international audience. And that's, that's the way I think that designer toys can kind of continue to grow because I think in the U S it's, it's, while it's growing, it's still hard to expand to other, uh, new markets within the United States, just from the standpoint of there's less footprints on the ground, like we're like store, you know, like there's less footprints of that in the actual country for people to walk into and discover randomly a designer toy. Hundreds of toy shops in China. Exactly. Maybe we'll see a day when that, that culture is popular enough here to support stores and smaller markets, but it's not yet, unfortunately. I mean, K-pop's over here now. That's grown pretty quick. That is true. So maybe Apple Toys next. And I have to say, I think uh, you know the the craze of Funko helped helped us. You know, it, it did help bring you know new eyes to collecting and all that kind of stuff. But it you know at the same time, the stores that carried our product kind of started to shrink, and Funko kind of went you know kind of big. And those people discovered us online. They didn't discover us through footprints. You know, like smaller stores that were carrying it. I'd st- I still want more stores. Like I just want more stores where people can walk in and find our stuff, but it's just not like you've said before, it's a niche. So it's, it's hard to financially make it. Indeed. Corey, when you open your store, I bet, I've been trying to get Corey to buy my store, but he, he's not interested. <laughs> oh man. He's, he just loves being in the, in the COVID crazy Florida. <laughs> too scary to open a store. Too much commitment, too much responsibility, and too much overhead. So you're saying you don't have any responsibility right now? I have very little responsibility. I have emails to get to, and that's about it. I don't have a staff or anything like that, or have to worry about people having health insurance. or Matilda's not complaining? Or <laughs> looting, or... Yeah, or looting. Uh, yeah, I don't have or, any of those problems. I, man, I don't the, that. The, the run-up to reopening the store after being shut for two and a half months, that was fun. Trying to yeah. trying to trying to source PPE for my staff and acrylic shields and mm-hmm. sanitizer and the signage, the required legally required signage and yeah, it was fun. And just the sheer amount of like plastic sheathing that's been sold, <laughs> like and like all the work these you know restaurants and stores and everything have had to go to. It's just it's just insane. Like the amount of stuff. I mean, it's it's all obviously for safety, but I can't imagine the the burden and bill that that caused to like all these stores. 
I do not envy people in in the restaurant business right now. Have you had interactions with like any like the kind of the crazy people that say, "Oh, I have a health condition. I, I don't have to wear a mask," or we, you know, fight you guys on it? We have not yet. Uh, although I, interestingly enough, addressed that with my staff today to make sure that they understood how to how to handle that scenario. But thankfully, you know, Chicago has since businesses were allowed to reopen, they've required masks in all. Uh, stores. That's good. And for the most part, you know, Chicago is a pretty Midwestern reasonable city, you know? Yeah. We're, we're not too crazy. I, I've actually had zero report from my staff that anybody has even tried to enter without a mask. So uh, knock on wood, let's hope that continues. Yeah, he's not in Florida, Corey. It's <laughs> <laughs> wild here, man. We don't, we don't get Florida man in Chicago. <laughs> A Chicago man is more likely to show up with a mask, but also a bottle of Malort, maybe some old style and a deep dish pizza. It did see some crazy shit go down. Like last week, there was like almost 30 shootings or something. Yeah, well, I mean, Chicago's a big city and there's plenty of violence to go around. I mean, if, yeah. if we want to head down that, you know, Chicago is this, Chicago's the perfect example of a city that was segregated and and the black community's been been crapped on for decades, mm-hmm. um, and that's led to economic disadvantage, and and that leads to crime, and it's unfortunate, and it, and it's all systemic, mm-hmm. you know, it's all to the the way the interstates were cut through neighborhoods and and things like that, and redlining uh, parts of the city, and you know, one of Chicago's strength is is how diverse it is, but at the same time. It's also very segregated, and it's it's sad. I noticed kind of a, a movement coming up. Called, I don't know if you've seen it called uh, "Where Are the Black Designers?" I have not. I mean, I, I've seen some, but maybe nothing specifically to designer toys. Although that would be a good question for designer toys no, too. Just uh, like designers in general, like uh, they're saying that I think out of all, like they did like a poll of like the list of professional designers, and black people are like less than seven percent. Which seems wild to me. It doesn't seem right. That doesn't. No. And I think you know, I was talking to Travis kind of about this when we were talking about the Black Lives Matter and everything was starting to come up. You know, there's a very, very small portion of black designer toy artists. It it, it really is. I'd have a hard time naming very many. That's sad. You got people like Roy Miles has always been doing great stuff, but no, there's there really aren't enough. I'd like to see more representation. Yeah, same. I mean, and historically, you know, if you look at, at what we've shown over the years, we haven't shown a lot of black artists. And it, it was not uh, by design. Exactly, because Corey and I had that conversation as well. It's like, you know, like I'm looking back at the people I've made, and it's like, you know, I've made all these different artists, and it's like from different groups, but never anybody from an African-American descent. And it's it's not like I planned it that way. You know, it's just these are the projects that present themselves, you know, and it's like I, I think there's a lot to be said about, you know, being conscious of that fact now and making an effort to change that. Mm-hmm. For sure. As I was saying earlier, I haven't I haven't booked any shows next year, mainly because things are, are just a little too dicey right now for me to commit to an artist that that I'm going to have a space for them that is conducive to showing their artwork and, and it gaining an audience. When I flip that switch, when I make that decision, I'm going to make a commitment to making sure that 
that were representing people of color as well as as white artists. There's no reason for us to. I could justify our our past schedule by saying, you know, I've I've never looked at the color of the artist. I've always looked at the artwork. And there's some merit in that, but but it's not enough. We need to make a conscious decision to include and and raise voices that add to the diversity of what we do. And now the question with that is is how easy do you think that is going to be to to find something that is going to work? In in my case, I'll tell you what it means is I'm not making a commitment to or, or or setting some some level that you know 30% of our shows will be artists of color. My commitment is I'm going to be casting a much wider net. Right. I'm going to, I'm right. going to be intentionally looking in places I haven't looked before uh, and trying to find artwork that will appeal to my audience that fits our mission that um, that works with the aesthetic that we promote. Right, like yeah, like something like art shows will be, for lack of a better term, a little bit easier than something like a toy production. Like, like for something like Travis O'Quarry getting involved in, you know, there's a lot of other. Well, I think the same the same creed though goes is is you know, when you're when you're saying okay we're we're going to have a production in six months or a year from now, um, you know, does, does anybody have any ideas? cast a wider net look further than than what you're used to specifically you know look for uh artists of color or look in in places that you maybe wouldn't before you know a lot of us have worked and, and I, I think it's true with most of the projects that uh we did with squibbles inc we worked with people that we knew you know yeah. that was that was really yeah. what it came down to and I think that's what a lot of uh, people in the toy industry do you know there's kind of like quote unquote clicks I guess you would say and there's, you know, the people that work with, you work with the people that you easily know that you can get what you need out of them and you can quickly turn a project and make it work. And um, sometimes what we do is a bit of convenience, I guess you would say, because we're all doing 500 things. So we need to make sure that everything could run as smoothly as possible. Yeah, but, it, sure. but it's got to get super tricky because you do have to make sure that it's something that's going to sell. Yeah, if you can find somebody that's a good character designer, the bet's pretty good as long as it ticks those boxes that you know is a good seller in that genre of whatever character it is. I was going to say, and I think somebody that runs a store like, you know, Kirby or, or Corey, you guys can see what sells across the board a little easier than, you know, just a normal producer because you guys have sales information. Sure. Yeah, sure. We do, we do have a little extra knowledge in terms of where does profitability fit into producing a toy? And I, I think Travis touched on this a little bit too. We certainly made decisions that were about the profitability of the toy, but those decisions were never the aesthetic decisions. They were decisions of size, complexity, how many colors are we going to do? How, how We would almost always start with a, a design or at least a, an idea of a toy with an artist uh, before we ever considered, can we sell it? You know? We got to love it first, and then we'll figure out how to make it. Because I tend to, I tend to feel, and I mean, I know I'm not necessarily the best judge of this, but I feel like if I look at something and I'm like, eh, I don't know if I could sell that, then I'm probably not going to put my heart into making it the best thing that it can be, and I'm probably not going to sell it as the level that it should be. So the the key for me is always to love the thing, or else 
what's the point? There's there's certainly no reason to put the the effort and the time that is involved in making a designer toy if your only motive is profit. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like you have to be happy that you have a set on your shelf. Yeah. Because that is probably the only thing you you just have to want it to exist. That's what I always say. The numbers don't make any sense. I mean, the the only person who really makes any kind of money, I, I would think, is somebody with the store, not the actual production line, unless you're some huge production line. Or you're an artist that has crazy sales. That's the other people. Well, guys, we've been talking for a while, so let's go ahead and start to wrap this episode up. Kirby, if you want to go ahead and uh, toss out your social media so people can look you up on the old internet. We're pretty easy to find. Obviously, the website is rotofuji.com, and we are rotofuji on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. R-O-T-O-F-U-G-I. And Chris? You can find me at Chris RWK or at Robots Will Kill. And Corey? Strange Cat Toys and all the social medias and strangecattoys.com. And I'm Travis Likens. You can find me at UVD Toys or UVDtoys.com. Uh, we want to take a second to say thank you to our sponsors once again. That is Stickerfied, Stickerfied.com, No Love City, NoLoveCity.com, SD Prints, SDScreenprinting.net, and TYO Toys, TYOtoys.com. This has been the Urban Robot Cat Podcast, the show about art and the people who make it. Thank you.